Okay, I got a couple places we can go, but I'll open it up for questions from you all first. So if you got a question, let it rip. Owen. Mr. Fessler. So is there any way we can know how the food was multiplied? When I see the Lord, I can ask him. No, it's, it's, it, 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 and this is often the case with some things. The part that I'm like interested in is skipped over. I don't know. I don't know. In one sense, we know food came into being that wasn't in being before. Did it phase in like on Star Trek, sort of starting fuzzy and um, you know, well, you know, there's a couple, no, there's a couple, there's a couple miracles like this in the Old Testament. There's Elijah and the widow, right? And she has an, a jar of oil that just keeps pouring oil. But again, like, what's ha if you could have a camera inside that jar, what would it look like? I don't know. You've got um, Elijah, um, that, this, actually Elisha, this in Second Kings incident where the, the biscuits fed 100 men. And again, similar, don't know. Um, so no, I don't know. Somewhere in Jesus, Jesus prays for it, and then in the distribution, they just don't run out. So... No, I don't know. I mean, Jake, Jake does know, so he's going to tell us. Jake, how'd it go down, Jake? How did that play out? I had a separate question. Oh, okay, okay. Um, could you, uh, you said that you, uh, it seemed likely that the fish or the loaves were, were dried or yeah. apologetically, that's fascinating because this idea that God only ever creates anything that looks brand new yeah. is important for us because why? I, I threw that out. I figured some of you would understand the significance of what I'd said, and that could hit the rest of it here. Fair enough. You just put it right over, right over, the, right over the plate. That's a sports thing, right? Right over the plate. Get a, get a field, I'm going to get a feed ball, get a field goal from that teed up ball. Okay. Okay. Now, I know, I know that's a football reference. Um, so, okay. <laughs> so, the, the guess about the, the loaves and the fish is just from what we know extra biblically. We do know biblically that barley loaves are going to be the, for the poorest. Of the, the, it's the cheapest food source. We also know just from the climate, and this is more extra biblical, but if you think long about it, you know how quickly a, a fresh loaf of bread goes moldy. So dried, hard biscuit, if you're, if you're going on a journey, if you're walking somewhere, that makes way more sense. And extra biblically, that's confirmed by what we know. So think more of like a hard tack biscuit, maybe a hardened bread roll, something like that. So it's not loaves, like sliced loaves of bread. It would be maybe probably something like this big that was probably hard. And the same thing with the fish. Fish is going to rot. Um, and so almost certainly either a fish relish or some dried fish. I mean, it didn't have to be that, but jerky, jerky fish jerky. There you go. Um, so we don't know. And again, John's point isn't there. My point in making the, is this, is, um, and I, is that when people sometimes wrestle with dealing with the evidence, the apparent evidence for the age of the earth and things, and well, if the earth looks old, it must be old. Um, well, at least here's one example where some things were made with some apparent age. Um, and I don't think God would make things with apparent age to deceive people. But if he had purposes and reasons, for instance, in Genesis, we're told God made the stars. Why? For seasons and days and years. That's only going to work if the light from those stars has reached here. It's pointless. It doesn't function if it takes 
3,000 years to light to get here. So one reason why I could conceive of, because one of the arguments starlight people will make for, the, for an older Earth is there are things hundreds of thousands of light years away and their light has reached here. Ergo, the Earth in the universe is hundreds of thousands of years old. Maybe. Or maybe, since we're told the function intended, maybe God... So, so the argument is I don't think God would intentionally deceive. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fake some fossils and bury them so people will think no but when there's a clear purpose like there is here oh hey look he wanted to make fish and so he made fish that were never eggs he made dried fish that were never dried he made grain that never sprouted bread that was never baked and there is here clearly an appearance of age that serves a purpose and is functional and all i'm saying is not that this solves anything but if you think god would never make something with an appearance of age here's something that's the pure, I only dipped my toe in that to say, look, if you, if you think, if, if you've accepted God would never make something with an appearance of age, that's false. This, this falsifies that claim. And, and no more. I'm not saying this proves anything other than it falsifies that claim for such a person who would be interested in making that claim. This would falsify it. Um, yeah, that's all. Dennis. I'm not going to I'm going to jump down to the end of your sermon where um, uh, the people wanted an earthly uh, king and a savior. And I thought and I wrote down Antichrist and I thought of David Lample's class at the end times that people when he does you, supposedly miracles and people are yeah. going to, you know, yeah. he's going to take reign over the earth and people are gullible and we need to be careful uh, not get into that, uh, you know, that I just thought your message on that was was really good that uh, we don't want to be just coming to Jesus for all the blessings. That's that's the icing on the cake. But we come to obey him and submit to his authority and, and make him our Lord and Savior in our lives. And that's a that's a process that takes a lifetime. Yeah. And God is so gracious to us and merciful when we fail. So I just thought that was a good point. Well, thank you. Thank you. Oh, Dean in the back. Talking about <clears throat> creating things that were aged, it reminded me that Adam and Eve were also, for practical reasons, uh, yeah. created as... And, and I don't know if they had belly buttons or not. I don't know. What was that? I don't know if they had belly buttons or not. No, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's the question. Did they have belly buttons? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Zeb. Zeb knows. That, not in regards to the belly buttons. That's not what I have. I have yeah. no input on that. Uh, my guess is no. But um, no, just another example of this apparent age. Um, the, what was Jesus' first public miracle? Water to wine. Water never, to what? That never what, fermented. What? Wa grape juice, Seb. I know. <laughs> Come from strong Baptist <laughs> that, tradition here. Grape juice. So um, it was grapes. It was water turned into grapes. Grapes that were never harvested or planted Wine that, that never, never fermented. fermented. Yeah. Like it was, it yeah. was wine, it, yeah. but it never fermented. That right. alcohol came from nowhere. And it was excellent wine. A, yeah. The best wine. Yes. Okay. Who, okay, go. Yes. Is there a significance on the 12 baskets? Most directly, one for each apostle. Some people have, have, there could be more than that to me. The obvious significance of it is just the abundance and how much there's, there's, John wants to give us the scope of the miracle, and there's so much leftover that each disciple had a basket of leftovers for them. And again, I think the baskets are far more likely a satchel type of basket than a garbage pail. 
Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's such an abundance that every disciple gets leftovers. Um, oh, what? What? They are going to go in a boat with those baskets of bread. And some of the other gospels actually pick up on that. That's where we know their hearts, they didn't understand. Which, the, when I say Peter didn't understand, it's because, I forget which synoptic, I got them all typed out here, but I have to look. Um, he, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And I think he's talking about the loaves they took. And it says, for their hearts were hardened and they did not understand. So it's the synoptics that give me, they don't understand what Jesus taught. Which, which again, if I'll get to you in one second, Dean. You, it's a fine place to be. I don't fully understand this hard teaching of God but I need to receive it and believe it and understand it. And I'm not going anywhere. Like you're with Peter, you're with the rock. You're with, or as my professor say, Rocky. Um, Dean. You were saying that, that possibly a basket to each apostle, but so did the boy, did he, was he paid or did he know. get a basket? We don't, we don't, like I said, we don't know. There's three possibilities. The, the one that's popular in most Sunday schools, there's a sweet little boy and he said, Jesus, I don't have much, but I'll give you what I have. That could have been the way it played out. What I, I don't think they just took it from him. Here, give me that. You know. So he offered it up, right? He offered it up, or it was for sale. Or, or they just did a survey. Hey, um, who's got something? That'd be my guess. My guess would be, it seems likely enough, if there's some mom in a nearby town who sees this big crowd, I'll bake some extra biscuits, and I'll take some, the fish I have and see if we can't make a few shekels. But that's, it, it's ultimately unimportant. I mean, if you got a favorite answer, if you think it was the child who's like, here you go, the scripture does not contradict that notion. We just aren't told. But those seem like the most likely scenarios. Ben. So I've uh, heard an interesting uh, theory about the, the young boy. Yeah. And that is that John the Beloved, the gospel writer, never mentions himself in his gospel. Yes. He calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. We yes. know he was younger than the other apostles. Yes. So that might be him. I don't. That, that I, is one theory, but. It's, no, depending on how it is conceptually possible, just, just as people have speculated the rich young ruler may have been the apostle Paul, conceivably. Um, Zeb's, Zeb's throwing Mark out. Zeb thinks it's Mark, John Mark, or Mark. I couldn't falsify that hypothesis. I, I couldn't. Because um, most of it is figuring out who John is by deduction, by scratching people out, and he doesn't show up as the disciple whom Jesus loved until the upper room discourse. So what he's doing, um, he's also possibly that, well, the only reason I think not the boy is, you mentioned the, I, what you said is possible. I would think... I think John shows up, and it's, again, trying to look at it like a polarized negative in a photo. Look at chapter 1. Um, in chapter 1, we get um, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with, his, with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two, two, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And then we're told who one of the two is. So here's an obvious blank, and there's a strong suggestion. How would John, the gospel writer, know about this? Well, the easiest explanation is he's the other unnamed person. So now it is true the Greek word for boy could be anything up to Joseph's 19, and, the, and this Greek 
translation of the Old Testament uses the same word to name Joseph when he's sold into slavery. So it could be someone as old as 19, but John's introduction of him, I think it's something like possible, can't falsify it, but, but that would be, that'd be my, my thought. Jake. I appreciate it, to, to change the subject slightly, I really appreciated the point about um, food, about how food was hard. It gave scale and scope to the miracle, right? Yeah. In a place where people really, not we have no concept of this, really didn't always have enough food. People starved to death all the time. You might not eat regularly, and you spent so much of your time and money just trying to procure food to survive. It just gives, uh, it's amazing to me, and that everyone ate their fill. If you're sitting around and you're in a culture where food shortages are very normal, and you're like, oh, here's a chance to eat all I want, you're gonna eat a lot, yeah. you know? Yeah. No like polite, well, I'll save that load for someone else, you know? Everyone's eating all they want. Well, if they're passing it around some more, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 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 so I just, exactly. yeah. I thought that was great because we don't really understand we don't understand food that way here. So I just, right. I appreciated that well, context. Well, the other thing that's missing, and this will come out in the next couple of weeks, we don't have a food staple. So when Jesus talks about bread, in, in that part of the world, that's food. I mean, it, we, we have developed food allergies. We've developed things like that. Probably partly because we're the mongrels of the genetic race. Like our gene pool is thinner than any other generations before. And partly because I think some of these things just arise in places with wealth. But there's nobody who doesn't eat bread. There's nobody trying to count their carbs in the Middle East at this time because bread is food. It's the food source. Just like if you go to China, it's rice. Rice is the food staple. You go to Papua New Guinea, it's the sweet potato. I mean, we just don't have. So when Jesus talks about bread, you can plug in food <laughs> and it's like, well, some people don't like bread and some people are intolerant to the, what's the stuff in bread that, yeah, yeah, gluten, right. And, and I'm not saying that's not real. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to mock that. I'm just saying this is a world where you don't eat bread, you die. Like that. So this, he's named the food staple, similar to the land flowing with milk and honey, food staples for people. You're grabbing, you're grabbing the whole thing and it's not like some Israelites are sitting there going, well, I don't really like bread and honey. Like, this is food. And so when Jesus talks about the bread come down from heaven, I am the thing come down from heaven. If you don't consume, you die. That, that's the idea. Um, and so, yeah, our, we've got more food in our convenience stores, our gas stations, than most countries do today. In their, in their, I mean, we have such a proliferation of food. Um, so, yeah. Lest any of us think, oh, wow, we fed a lot of people. That's cool, you know? Right. We do that at the fair every year. Right. It's not, it wasn't like that, you know? <laughs> Well, to give you an idea of how important it was for food, they, I mean, they travel around a sea. Some of them go by boats to get another free meal. That's how, I mean, would you walk 10, 12 miles to get a lunch? These people did. Dave, Dave might, but fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough. And by the way, for, for some, bread is a staple. Okay. Married to her. Bread is a staple. There you go. There you go. <laughs> okay, yes. Mike Doty. Yeah, quick question. <clears throat> In this section of John, he parenthetically renames the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. He's done that a few other times. Yes, he has. Where he, he amplifies a word that might be of local use. Yes. Who's, so, who's he trying to? To write to and inform with that. No, fa fascinating. So here's the, this, if you go back to like eight months ago, I think I did a message 
talking about the contextual data. So John does two things. He gives us Greek names for things. You might not know what the Sea of Galilee is, but you might know it's the Sea of Tiberias. So there's an assumption that some, many of his audience, are familiar with the Greek names for things. And there's also an assumption that they're not familiar with Hebrew names. So we get translations. Go back to chapter one, where we get our first translation of some terms that are, even for us, are obvious. Um, so for instance, we get um, verse 41 of chapter one. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And if you remember, Christ is just a transliteration of the Greek Christos, just as Messiah is a transliteration of the Hebrew Messiah. And so John is not confident all of his readers are going to track with Messiah, but he, so he gives them Christ. He's not confident they're going to track with Sea of Galilee, so he gives them the, uh, the Sea of um, Tiberias. But he does think they know the Bible. He'll quote the Old Testament unapologetically. So some sort of Greek-speaking audience who knows the Old Testament but doesn't know Jewish terms, in at least Hebrew. They don't know Hebrew words. That's what we're looking at. Um, so probably my guess, my best guess at the time would be, because I also think he's writing to people who've heard this story before, the, the, the side references to, well, John hadn't been arrested yet. He never picks that thread back up again. He just throws it out, which only makes sense if he thinks a good portion of his audience are aware that John the Baptist was arrested. He introduces Andrew, back in chapter one again. He introduces Andrew as Peter's brother, a verse before he introduces Peter, which makes sense if Peter's a big deal and already known to be a big deal. Um, he does the same renaming with Golgotha, the place of the skull. Same thing with the Hebrew there. Um, so about five times in the gospel, I could show you places where John translates Hebrew terms into Greek and places where he evidences some assumption that some in his audience know this story already. Um, at the end of chapter four is another one. Um, why, in the middle of chapter four, why does Jesus leave the Samaritans? Because he himself had also testified, verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Except nowhere in John's gospel are those words put in Jesus' mouth. They are in Matthew and Mark. <laughs> so things like that indicate John is writing not to, I, I've heard this before, John, John's for the, new, the, the person who's never heard, and I'm not saying it isn't. Give, give somebody who's never heard the gospel story the gospel of John. But I think John evidences, he thinks he's writing at least to a good portion of his readership are people who already know the at least big outlines of the story. And he is hand, and that explains again why he's hand-picking episodes that largely aren't in the synoptics. Here's, here's 10 or 12 other things I want to make sure you know Jesus did and said that the synoptics don't cover. That's, does that go where you're going or do you want to go further with that thread? Hold on. I, uh, you reference Greek. Yes. And I've always read Tiberius as being Roman. Yes, the so Hel I, but the Hellenized world, yes. Okay. Hel so was, the Roman world, I'm talking the language. Romans were Hellenized the world. They took Greek culture, they said it was theirs, and then they spread it everywhere. Okay. So I, mean, I was speculating that John's view of how his writings would be used would be in Rome yes. and the rest of the, the Roman world speaking Greek. Uh, apart from yeah. the Middle East. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Or because 
like we've seen even in Acts, the suggestion that, that Rome is the lingua franca, that, that everybody speaks enough Rome, Roman, a Greek, Rome's the lingua franca, Greek is the lingua franca, that everybody speaks enough Greek that they could buy and sell, get some directions, because that's the, the, the language of the empire. So you've got Jews who speak Hebrew, but I'm sure everybody's picked up enough Greek to get by, or everybody who deals with the broader culture, maybe people in small towns didn't, but any merchant, many people would know a fair amount of Greek um, simply to get by. So, yeah. Okay. Other thoughts, questions on any of this stuff? Okay, I'm going to take it on a rabbit trail. So, um, one of the interesting things in harmonizing these, and when you've got multiple accounts, sometimes um, you can harmonize them. I've heard people teach the feeding of the 5,000. My old teacher, John MacArthur, used to do this all the time. Whenever he taught anything, if it was in any of the other gospels, he'd fill that in. And that's a fine thing to do. It's not what I did this morning. Um, it's, it's a fine thing to do. First and foremost, it demonstrates there aren't contradictions in scripture. Um, secondly, MacArthur's emphasis is the totality of the information given. I want to know everything I can know about the feeding of the 5,000. My approach this morning, because John so seldom picks to relate events that occur in the other Gospels. I mean, literally 90% of John's content is original to John. The one time John, or the one of the two times that John does do that, I'm trying to pay attention to, wait a sec, what are you adding? What are you doing? And so I made a list, I was reading from it this morning, and it's here somewhere, here it is, of all the things that are in the synoptics that John leaves out. John makes no mention of, John just drops. And a lot of the synoptics double up. You've, all of them have, he had compassion. All of them have, two of them have, he taught them first. One of them has even healed them and taught them first. The disciples urging him to send them away. That's in all three of them. None of that's in John. Just drops it all out. The, the setup, he, he went there because the 12 had come back from their ministry and they were going to tell him how they did. And they tell him about the beheading of John the Baptist. That gets dropped. What does John include that none of the others have? Passover. Jesus actually takes the initiative, the response to the crowd, and why he departs. And so looking at it that way, it became framed clearly. John wanted to make those details plain, and he lopped off all the stuff he wasn't interested in to narrow the focus. And so that I found fascinating as, as, as coming at this that way. But one of the things that's interesting is if to harmonize this, there is a gap of a number of hours in this narrative that doesn't jump out at you. There's no problem. There's no, there's no, there's no contradiction. But... Because all three of the synoptics make it plain, the urging of the disciples that Jesus sends the crowd away takes place as the day ends at nighttime. And then after that, they find the boy with the fish. Then that would mean, to harmonize the Gospels, that verse 8 has to be at evening time. In John 6, 6, 8 has to be at evening time. Um, And yet verse 5 makes it clear that what he says in five is before the crowds get there. So lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, we just, because the next thing that comes in verse six is of the same topic, and it's, I think, a natural enough assumption, we assume, you know, um, that, that uh, he, he said this, no, verse seven, Philip answered, okay, verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy. But there's nothing that doesn't mean there isn't five or six hours in between. And harmonizing the Gospels, you learn, yeah, what happens in between 
7 and 8, Jesus heals them. Jesus teaches them. And then the disciples come and say, send, send them away. It's getting late. It's getting late. And then verse 8 picks up. But you wouldn't know that without harmonizing them. Now, it doesn't matter from John's point. John lops off. Jesus taught them. John lops off. Jesus healed them. Even though he references they saw the signs he was doing healing. And then he picks up on what interests him. So again, that type of attention to detail focuses, for me at least, what does John want us to see? He doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't care about why they came out here. That's not his purpose. He doesn't care about what he did first. He wants you to see Jesus took the initiative. This, this feeding was in Jesus' mind from the beginning. It was not a, what am I going to do? When I'm, I know what I'm going to do. Aha. I'm gonna, he knew from the beginning what he was going to do. But most significantly, he, it explains the suddenness. Go, go to Matthew. I mentioned this, but Matthew's account of this is striking. Um, I'm trying to, there we go. Yeah, Matthew 14. So, yeah. Um, and so I'll show you, I'll show you, just we'll read through some of Matthew on this. So the beginning of 14 is the death of John the Baptist. And uh, pick it up in 12. His disciples came, took the body, buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. When the crowd heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now Matthew doesn't include he taught them. That's in Luke and in Mark. Um, now when evening came, the disciples said to him, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountains by himself. So John has this, I mean, Matthew has this immediately with no explanation for why. Now, I'd say that Matthew's not concerned with that. Matthew wants to next look at Jesus crossing the water and the terror of the disciples. John wants us to see that. John gives those details. What does, what does the crowd think? How do they respond? John alone tells us. And why on earth would Jesus leave such a faithful, apparently faithful crowd? They're coming out to see him. I mean, make the case. Be the defense attorney for this crowd. Come on, Jesus. They've traveled a long way to see you. They've walked in the hot Middle Eastern sun. They didn't know where food was going to come from, yet they stayed. And you depart suddenly. You just leave. Why? John tells us why. John, John wants us to see that. He wants us to understand why would Jesus leave these people? That's why. And then the rest of the discourse is going to even more fully unpack that. As we, we hear them say, who can listen to this? They've identified him as that. I mean, that's, that's the real thing. They are the ones in their mouths. This is the prophet. What's the one thing you're supposed to do to the prophet? You're supposed to listen to him. What do they actually say? Who can listen to this? Now, there is the, there's the problem. They say he's the prophet, but they don't really mean it. They're not willing to act upon it. That's why Jesus left. They just want bread. They just want a king who can feed them. They just want the, the social state. Um, 
something like that. But, but that's the focus John brings, and that's, that's how I tried to come at this. So, okay, questions along the, any other lines, those, harmonizing them. Oh, Isla. Are those two different feedings? And the one, as I'm listening, I hear you say, he dismissed the crowd. And the other one, you said, he stole away. Well, John, John just says, seeing that they were attempting to come and take him by force to be king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain. Now, Matthew filling, in withdrawn, guys, go home, I'm out of here. I mean, so there, again, harmonizing's no problem. It's not that he just sort of booked it. But he dismisses them. Guys, we're done here, we're done here, go home. And then he goes up the mountain by himself. But the dismissal could have taken 20 seconds. I mean, so you, you put it all together, sure. There's no, there's no problems, there's no problems with harmonizing or contradicting it. John's focus, by, even by leaving that out, is again, why did he leave? Why did he leave? He left because he saw they were about to come and try to make him king by force. That's why he left. Um, and so then I'm trying to say, what is, what is by, based on what John drops out and based on what John adds in, what do I think John's emphasis is? And that's what I'm trying to, that's, that's my attempt is to answer that. Okay, Greg. Well, I think one thing that you're drawing out and something that is easy for us to sort of lose track of is the Gospels weren't all necessarily meant to be an itinerary or a uh, a retelling of everything that right. that Jesus did. Right. And so some and and since we sometimes think that's what they are, we right. we look for well, well hey, uh, John didn't mention this. So did it happen or didn't it happen? And it's it's simply a matter as you've pointed out numerous times today that John's for John's purpose of what he wanted to point out, it didn't serve any purpose, so he didn't right. dwell on it. I mean, to just as you've talked about today, John wanted to talk about what the response was and why Jesus left. Yeah. Well, to fill in all the other details is just going to confuse everybody. Exactly. No, no, exactly. And especially since John evidences an awareness that his audience may well know this veda, that might even further explain why I can drop things out. You know this already, so I don't need to tell you about this. It, it does mean... His, his indications of knowledge of other things does argue against John's faking this and he's ignorant and he's making stuff up. No, even little, that's where little things are, the grass being green. If, as some argue, the Gospel of John is written from, you know, from Egypt um, in the fourth century, I'd be very surprised to know if people knew what season of the year grass was green in the Middle East in Israel. Little details like that. Um, are marks, hallmarks of authenticity. And John's awareness of other things, the fact that on the points where they line up, they're exact. 12 baskets, not 13, not 14, 12 baskets. About 5,000 in all of them. So all the details that do overlap match perfectly. And so John just drops out the part he doesn't care about. Um, and he says as much at the end. Many other, I mean, go, go, to, go to John 20. John tells us that he culled his material, that he is, I mean, more than, John tells us he left out a thousand times more than he included. He says it hyperbolically, but the, the purpose of the hyperbole, um, if that's a word, is uh, what? The hyperbole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the purpose of the hyperbole is to make a point. Um, so in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So there's a lot of other things John says Jesus did that I didn't write down, like teaching the 5,000, like 
healing the 5,000, like John's beheading. Lots of other, well, he didn't do John's beheading. Yeah, anyway. Um, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing me have life in his name. Then go to chapter 2125. There are also many other things that Jesus did, or every one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So your point, Greg, even made further, not only is John not saying he wrote everything, John's emphasizing, I wrote a sliver of what I could have written. But then that gets back to, so this is handpicked, this is precise, this is intentional. So then every detail, I'm assuming, has some purpose, which part of half my week, why the Passover? Why tell us the Passover? What's the significance of the Passover? Um, especially the ESV masked the, the causal connection, but the most natural use of the Greek um, uh, conjunction there is therefore thus accordingly. And so the, the NASB, or I'll read, uh, where's my... The legacy, I'm going to read the legacy. The legacy standard, I was reading the legacy standard with Pastor Daniel, and it was like, whoa. And then we checked the Greek to make sure it backed it up. I mean, un could mean when. It's, it's not its most common natural usage. Here's the LSV um, reading of, of, of uh, the legacy standard, which is basically a, an update and an improvement on the 95 numerical standard. So here's what it says. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where should we buy bread? So, so if that translation is accurate, I think it is, then John is saying because the Passover was coming is the reason Jesus, lifting up his eyes, said this to Philip. Jesus asked Philip about food because the Passover was coming. How does that work? What's the, what's the connection there? That, that's what I spent half my week mulling over. Um, and then that led to reading Exodus and realizing, well, really, the Passover meal is so closely connected to the manna and realizing that Jesus is going to start with bread from heaven and manna and very quickly shift from bread to flesh that you eat. Oh, that's the Passover meal. So seeing that this, all of this is within four chapters of, of, of Exodus and that Jesus starts with the manna and then shifts back to Passover with eating flesh, which is right out of Exodus. You eat the flesh of the lamb. So that, okay, that's why the Passover, okay. Um, yes, Greg. Well, I was just gonna say, part of explaining the Passover was maybe for the naysayers in the, in the nearest future, near future of saying, wait a minute, why, how would he run across a whole bunch of people <laughs> right, out in right. the middle of the wilderness when they, everybody knows you have to spend all day every day working to get enough food to eat. Right. So why would there be this large yeah. crowd of people just meandering around? That explains John's purpose in telling us the Passover, but there, which is the first point in my outline. This, this helps explain why there could be a large crowd. But I'm saying the grammar says, because it was Passover, Jesus said this to Philip. So that's the point of connection that I was chewing on is why. Jesus is sitting there. Passover's near. Therefore, I'm going to say this to Philip when I see the crowd. What's that connection? Why would Passover, being near, cause Jesus, be the impetus, be the, the basis for what he says to Philip? That, that's what I was trying to, trying to unpack, which, hey, I just went and read Exodus. I'm like, oh, that makes a bit more sense. <laughs> you know, which is, uh, if, if you want to do some of this afternoon, read Exodus 12 to 16. 
And you can just see the tight flow of the narrative going from the institution of the Passover where you eat the flesh to the, and you apply its blood to the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, Moses' song, turning the bitter water sweet, and then manna. Oh, and then people grumbling right there in 16, just like they grumble here. So that, that once just, this will shock you, once I just read some of the Exodus, it made more sense. Um, which again, go back, just read the text, and then read the text the text is referencing. You know, I thought I understood what was going on there. I just read it, and like, oh, this makes a bit, <laughs> seems a bit clearer. So uh, I commend to you the reading of the text. It's helpful. Um, Deb. Yeah, I appreciated what you just said about uh, you read the whole thing, read the what it references and everything yeah. else. Because I, I still am amazed every Sunday when I read this passage ahead of time and think, oh yeah, Jesus cut out of there because it wasn't his time yet. That's what I got out of it. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> then on Sunday, I find out, oh, I didn't have it right at all. No, and, and it's not as time that could be a factor as well. I mean, it's the what's going to force the, the Jews' claim for why they want to kill Jesus is the blasphemy, son of God language. We know it's also the light exposing the darkness. But what forces the Pilate and the Rome's hand is his claim to kingship. That, I mean, Pilate wants to let Jesus go, and the Jews, in John's gospel, it's the clearest. John highlights this, threaten him. Anyone who makes himself out to be a king is a threat to Caesar. Implied threat. If Caesar finds out you, you deal softly with would-be kings, Caesar's not going to be happy. And so Pilate's hand is forced, but it's clear he's angry about it. He's unhappy about it because he is just trying to needle them every chance he gets. And, uh, but, he, but it's a legit threat. He, he, he will kowtow to he will not play games with that rumor getting out. So there is something to also, if, if there's throngs of people trying to make Jesus king too early, that also might speed things up. That could be in the background. Where this goes with the connection of, and, and this is the biggest thing for me, they say he's the prophet. That's clearly Deuteronomy 18. They say who can listen to him. That, that is so clear when the one thing you're supposed to do when the prophet comes is listen. God's going to hold you accountable. He's going to judge you if you don't. And they can't listen. But they do want more bread. Oh, they want some more bread. Um, yeah, yeah. we got and, two minutes. And it's the kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, we call him Lord. <laughs> what does that mean? Right, right. Well, no, and that's, again, challenging for us. There are so many attendant blessings to being a Christian. I mean, um, it, it I mean, there is a beauty to God's design and God's world. There's an order. There's a nobility to, to being faithful. I mean, if, if you obey Christ, if you're seeing people who are trying to follow Christ, you, you are going to see elements of, of kindness and mercy and nobility and courage. And all that's attractive. That makes good citizens. It makes a good community, right? Um, Christians started orphanages. There are all sorts of reasons apart from Jesus to like Christianity from the outside. And, 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 I, I, you, know, and you go through all this. And you add in all these things that people emphasize that are that are real i mean i don't want to minimize knowing god loved me knowing that someone cared for me was but yes amen keep going forward there's more knowing that i wouldn't have to walk through life alone knowing that there's a purpose and a plan for my life knowing that my suffering is not meaningless knowing that it's ordered knowing that there's a hope for the future all of that's wonderful 
how are you going to do with this word? What are you going to do with this word? That's, that's the issue. That's, the, that's, that's what separates the saved from the unsaved, the disciples from the crowds that fall away. And so those can all be inroads to, to Christianity. Those, I mean, we, that can be inroads. The man who, who Jesus healed, it's sure in some sense was a fan of Jesus, but let's see where that takes him. But the, 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 the final exam is going to be, you say I'm the prophet, what do you do with my teaching? Well, they don't want his teaching. When they get his teaching, they don't like it and they go away. Okay. There's kind of like, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> and that is the proof of where they're at. That helps explain why, in chapter 2, a group of people could believe in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And I think Nicodemus represents them. What did they believe? Well, Nicodemus believed something. No one, you must be from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. These people believe he's the prophet. That, that's, that's the guy Moses said would come, and they're right. Do you believe it, though? I, let's see what you do when he teaches you something challenging. Now I'm going to go home. Yeah, okay, you don't really believe um, that, I think, is the clarity John's giving on what saving faith, what faith is, and what it isn't. And so the, that disjunct, that problem he throws up in chapter 2, which I think Nicodemus, in part, explains, gets his full explanation here. Um, we see why Jesus would want to distance himself from these people. Because when they actually understand what he's teaching, they're going to distance themselves on their own. See, what Jesus does in crossing the sea, they do when they understand what he's teaching. Once they understand each other, neither of them want anything to do with the other. <laughs> Jesus first crosses a lake to get away from them, and then when they hear his teaching, they, they go home, right? So, and, yeah. Okay, we're at time. I'll stick around for a few minutes. We can chat some more, but God bless. Godspeed. Good day. Thank you.